it hurt a lot. I didn't expect to be as emotional as I was, even knowing that it was coming. But when it actually happens, I mean, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, we've been working for the past 50 years to see this through, and we just couldn't be more excited. Emotions ran high on both sides of the abortion debate after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in June that there is no constitutional right to an abortion. Both the Democrats and Republicans see the overturning of Roe v. Wade as an opportunity to get more people to the polls this November. I'm Doug Sovereign, and this is The Home Stretch, a new political podcast from Odyssey that'll examine some of the biggest issues leading up to the midterm elections. This week, we explore the potential impact on the election of the Supreme Court's historic abortion ruling. In June, the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health held that the U.S. Constitution does not confer a right to abortion, overturning nearly 50 years of precedent set by the Court's 1973 decision in Roe v. Wade and upheld in 1992 in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Now the question of abortion, if it should be legal, when it should be allowed, goes back to the individual states. Voters in California, Kentucky, Michigan, and Vermont will vote on amendments to their state constitutions related to abortion in November. But nowhere has the abortion fight had more twists and turns than in Michigan, where voters will decide whether or not to codify abortion rights. There's a lot of back and forth about the constitutionality of abortion in Michigan. There has been litigation about whether the existing constitution allows for abortion rights. That's Mary Ziegler, a law professor at UC Davis and one of the leading experts on the history of abortion in the United States. There's also been some question about whether or not this ballot initiative will get onto the state ballot. There have been more than enough signatures gathered. The state election officials were trying to keep it off the ballot in a partisan way by arguing that there were problems with the spacing and punctuation. Ultimately, that went up to the Michigan Supreme Court. The Michigan Supreme Court said the ballot initiative is back on while voters head to the polls to decide whether they want to clarify that there is indeed a right, regardless of what the Michigan courts thinks. You know, it's kind of wild that it came down to a fight over font size and kerning, which is, you know, the amount of space between letters, these little technicalities over whether people could vote on something as big as this. Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. I think that it's not that surprising given that there have been concerns about you know, the fairness of elections are about people wanting elections to exist at all. And so I think we can understand what's happening with the Michigan ballot as part of that kind of broader concern. Thus far, it hasn't worked. But I think obviously, it's something you probably will have to keep an eye on as you look at these kinds of ballot initiatives going forward. And in Michigan, I mean, they have a law dating back to 1931, outlawing abortion. And a lot of this fight has been over whether that law should be allowed to take effect now, right? Correct. Yeah. And the 1931 law, I think, is also unusual because most states weren't passing abortion bans then. That's not the era when a lot of them were taking shape. And so um, I think people have been trying to figure out where this law came from and whether it was passed for unconstitutional reasons. That 1931 law prohibits abortion even in the case of rape or incest, except to preserve a woman's life. In early September, it was ruled unconstitutional by the Michigan Supreme Court. Rebecca Kiesling of the anti abortion group Save the One told Detroit's WWJ that she was directly affected by the 91-year-old law. I was protected by the 1931 law here in Michigan. My birth mother had sought to end my life at two illegal abortions and was pro-choice when we met, but changed her mind six years later, and today we're both thankful for that law, which spared us both from the horror of abortion. 
Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow says she couldn't help but think about her own daughter after the ruling came down. It is devastating thinking that Noah is going to have less autonomy over her own body. I don't want her to be forced to carry a pregnancy. It's just devastating. The first major test anti-abortion activists faced after the Supreme Court's ruling in June was a constitutional amendment on the ballot in Kansas in early August. 59% of voters there rejected an amendment that said there was no right to an abortion in the state. How do you explain the disconnect between, you know, the national majority of support, which is consistently in at least the low 60s and often closer to 70 percent, and the policies of those federally and and in states who vote against them, try to block them, and seem to be going against the will of the people they represent? Voters may look at the abortion policies passed by their legislators and say, well, gee, that's not what I would do or I don't really like this, but they wouldn't be angry enough about it to actually vote for Democrats. Which is why, you know, for example, in Kansas, it's quite possible that you could see the Democratic governor in Kansas, who's an incumbent, defeated in 2022. You could see a Republican attorney general chosen in that state, notwithstanding the fact, right, that voters really didn't want an abortion ban. Despite its voting history in presidential elections, Kansas hasn't voted for a Democrat for president since 1964. The state has elected an equal number of Democrats and Republicans as governor since 1979. I think some of what you're seeing is essentially the depth of partisan polarization in the U.S. trumping preferences on individual issues. It's kind of reminiscent of what we saw with Medicaid expansion, right? When you would take that directly to voters in places like Kentucky, you would often get the answer that voters wanted it, but not necessarily enough to override people's preferences for Republicans. And Republicans, I think, in turn, in many of these states, functionally don't worry about general elections at all. They think only about primaries and donors. And for that reason, their incentive is essentially to tack to the right to kind of fend off potential primary challengers to their right and have no real incentive to worry about what general election voters want them to do. So you've studied and written about abortion for a really long time. Why do you think it has remained such a hot button issue in this country when it's pretty much resolved in many other Western democracies? It's not especially controversial. It's legal. And while the world has generally been liberalizing abortion laws, here's the U.S. going in the opposite direction. Why is that? Well, I think in the U.S. there's always been a disconnect between policy and what voters actually want. If you look at polling in the U.S. on abortion and you look at polling in much of Europe on abortion, it's very similar, right? A majority of Americans would be pretty comfortable with something like what you would see in most of Europe, which would be, you know, pretty much anyone can get an abortion for any reason for the first 12 to 15 weeks of pregnancy. And then after that, if they have a reason like a health concern or a fetal condition that's incompatible with life or whatever, right? Part of the reason our politics are so extreme is that since abortion became a partisan issue in the early 1980s, both parties have acted on the assumption that the only people who will actually vote based on abortion are the people at the extremes, and that people in the middle ultimately don't care. So they've crafted policies essentially to cater to people with the strongest preferences who also have the least willingness to compromise or care about what voters actually think. Michigan's not the only state voting on abortion in November. California and Vermont will decide whether to protect the right to an abortion, while voters in Kentucky will determine whether to outlaw it. The country was surprised, I think, by how lopsided the vote to protect abortion rights was in Kansas. California and Vermont, I think, are probably foregone conclusions this November. Here in California, I mean, the polls show it's, you know, it's going to get 70 percent or something like that. But what do you expect we might see in Michigan in November? 
the result will probably not be as lopsided as it's going to be in Vermont and California, but Michigan seems to have a pro-choice majority. We would expect that provision to pass. Again, we don't necessarily have the world's most amazing state-level polling on abortion, so you have to take some of this with a grain of salt. But to the extent we do have polling, it would suggest that Michigan's amendment would pass pretty comfortably, potentially even more comfortably than the one in Kansas, given how voters usually respond to the idea of abortion in the state. And what about in Kentucky? Kentucky, you would probably expect things to go the other way. Kentucky is a a scenario where um, the devil may be in the details. There are about 16 states where polls suggest that voters would actually want some kind of abortion ban. About half of those are divided roughly down the middle, including places like South Carolina, where Republicans are warring right now over the details of abortion bans. Kentucky is a state where, as far as we can tell, there is a majority that supports some kind of ban. So I think you would expect Kentucky's amendment to do well. I think where it potentially gets tricky in red states like Kentucky is that voters may want an abortion ban, but want exceptions that Republican legislators aren't prepared to include. And that can create stumbling blocks if voters think that Republican lawmakers are ignoring their wishes on that kind of subject. You know, there's a sense, at least in California and maybe some of these other states, too, that this is the end game. If you amend your state constitution, this right is sacred. You don't have to worry about it. But what happens if there's a federal abortion ban nationally passed by a future Congress? Well, then, of course, that becomes a problem in California, right? Because even if California officials don't want to enforce the federal ban or even refuse to enforce the federal ban, federal law enforcement could choose to do so, right? And the same goes for something even more likely. At the moment, the prospects of a national statutory ban don't seem that great. We all saw the reaction to Lindsey Graham's 15-week proposal, which was, you know, if anything, like probably just as bad among Republicans in Congress as it was among Democrats. But we do know that if you just have a Republican president, you could, for example, see really radical changes to access to medication abortion in California. Because, of course, if the FDA, for example, were to withdraw approval for mifepristone or one of the drugs in the two-pill protocol for medication abortion, that could change access in California pretty significantly. So the picture at the federal level will always be really important, even in states like California that are doing, I think, almost everything they can at the state level to safeguard access within the state. While polls and the Kansas vote indicate that when abortion is a single issue on the ballot, voters in most states tend to be pro-abortion rights, it's a different story when it comes to voting for candidates. For almost 50 years, ever since Roe v. Wade came down, abortion's been this contentious issue, but it's always been kind of a theoretical one. For Democrats, it was, you know, vote for us or you could lose this right. And for Republicans, it was vote for us and we'll promise to get rid of that right. But now it's not an abstract idea. So How has that dynamic changed since June, and what do you think that holds for this November? Obviously, things can change between now and November, but we've seen a lot more Democrats ranking abortion as a priority. Interestingly, a lot of Republicans rank the abortion issue as less important, particularly Republican women, potentially because they think, you know, that policy is already where they want it to be, and there's no real need to get that excited about it anymore. It seems, at least at the moment, that voters are putting more emphasis on the abortion issue than they would have historically. The interesting question is whether that holds for the next few months or if that's just sort of where we are now and some other issue will take precedence in the next few weeks. Given that, I mean, is there the potential for some surprises here if we have a much bigger turnout of suburban women, college educated women than the polls would estimate that we could see some results we don't really expect? If polls are accurate, before Dobbs, it seemed as if Democrats were headed for some pretty catastrophic losses in the 2022 midterms. 
polling data have changed pretty significantly since then. And a lot of pundits are predicting that Democrats will hold the Senate and may even be competitive in the House, although I think just the, the House map at the moment is making that more of a long shot, even with the backlash to Dobbs. So if those polls are accurate, you would go from a situation where Democrats would not only lose the midterms, which is what you'd expect given that Joe Biden is in the White House, but would lose them badly, to a situation where Democrats might lose only one House of Congress or maybe even no Houses of Congress and not as many governor's mansions, not as many other races. So that would already be a game changer. And of course, you know, 2022 is just one part of the story, right? So if there is this kind of backlash, we could see it continue on into 2024, especially if conservative lawmakers continue passing policies that voters find objectionable. I'm Doug Sovereign, and thanks for listening to this episode of our new podcast, The Homestretch. Every Thursday from now until the midterms in November, we'll drop a new episode focused on the most watched issues of this election cycle, including inflation, the Latino vote, control of the Senate, and more. Please leave us a rating and a review, and subscribe so the next episode is waiting for you as soon as it's released. This episode was produced by Lauren Barry and Cooper Mall, writing by Chris Blake, sound design by Zach Clark. Odyssey's managing producer for national news podcasts is Myron Catherine.